Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship you with uh, all that we have and to love you with all that we have. And Lord, we admit that we fall short in that, and yet you in your mercy still love us and still pursue us and still care for us and still rescue us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We're still in Acts uh, 14 talking about uh, when everybody thinks that Paul is uh, Hermes and uh, Barnabas is Zeus. And, um, and we're going to talk, continue our little conversation about uh, worship. But this morning we're going to talk a little bit more about the Advent in detail. Uh, where are we going? Thank you. Your reward is in heaven. <laughs> and Christmas. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. I mean, my kids get worse the closer we get to Christmas. This whole, he's making a list, checking it twice, that's a lie. Um, gosh, they, they really are. And they know. We've even got that elf on a shelf, which is not Christian at all. And in fact, it's the antithesis, antithesis to Christianity. And yet, the kids, they think it's so funny. Like, I, if I were their age and I knew that there was some doll that was coming to life in the middle of the night and reporting back to Santa, I'd, I'd take it out. I would absolutely take. So, you know, if you, if you touch it, it loses its magical powers. I'd be all over that thing. Like, we are keeping him docked right here. So they're, they're just getting worse. They're just getting worse. Um, and I, I mean, it's excitement, I guess, right? It's excitement. They're excited about Christmas. I hope they're excited about coal and switches. So... <laughs> Just kidding. Has anyone actually ever given their kids colon switches? But then, but then, but, but you had stuff waiting in the wings, or no, really, you did, like, that was it. Like, better luck next year. <laughs> Dan, really? Yeah, yeah, okay, well, it is. I don't think the EPA lets you give coal out anymore, but. Oh, just kidding. So, all right. Anyway, let's get back to worship. Uh, we don't worship elves. We don't worship Santa Claus, uh, as lovely as they are. Uh, but uh, we've been talking about worship, and worship in the early church uh, was different uh, than it is now, and yet the principles of it uh, were the same. Um, we see that when Paul and Barnabas are there in uh, Lystra, they um, are preaching, and the people and the priest at the temple of Zeus, they want to sacrifice and, and to burn incense and worship there uh, in, uh, in their midst because they feel that the gods have come down and dwelt amongst them. Paul and Barnabas' reaction to this is to tear their clothes, uh, to tear their clothes. And to rent your, rent your garments uh, is, uh, is significant a protest as you, uh, as you can make. Um, it, it definitely would get your attention if all of a sudden somebody in public started you know, to rip their clothes. That, uh, you would pay attention to what you're saying. And they would say, don't worship us. Uh, we are but mortal men. Uh, and I, I love that little uh, line that, that was uh, continued to use. But even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So even though telling them that you are wasting your time uh, and uh, you shouldn't be offering sacrifice to anybody, frankly, uh, but much less to us, uh, they just didn't, uh, didn't get it. Well, some of the things that marked Worship in the early church is one, uh, and should mark our worship. Now, worship is not just a Sunday event. I know that we speak of it in those terms, that we say, I'm going to worship on Sunday. 
Uh, and indeed, it's great that we all get together as a corporate body uh, to worship the Lord on Sundays, but worship is an expectation uh, in, in all of our lives. Uh, it's not just uh, a Sunday event where we sort of worship for an hour, we, we clock in, and then we move on and, and go back uh, to real life. And that's hard because many of us do live compartmentalized lives. I mean, if, you know, uh, I always uh, think it's, it's, you know, one of the hard things in our family is, uh, but one of the perks for me, is I never have to get our kids ready for church. It's just awesome uh, for me. Um, and... Um, and Paul Zoll, when he was uh, the rector of St. Mary Scarborough, it was his first or second Sunday, and there was Mary in the pew with John, who was five, David, who was three, and Simeon, who was a baby, and they were being very unruly. And Mary heard the woman in behind her lean to her neighbor and say, where is that woman's husband? Um, uh, so... Um, I mean, even, even when you have time set aside for worship, it's really hard to worship, isn't it? If you have a lot of distractions, and it may not be children, but we all have a lot going on in our lives that when we're there and we think that as we uh, kneel before the start of worship, we think, all right, time to focus on Jesus, time to put the cares of the world behind us, be quiet, sit down, or colon switches for you, uh, whatever it is, maybe it's the stress of work, the stress of... Um, you know, worrying about the house payment. I don't know what it is, but we have plenty of things uh, to distract us uh, from worshiping uh, on Sunday mornings. And yet uh, we open our communion service with this wonderful collect for purity, and we say, uh, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known. Uh, God really is not interested uh, in us compartmentalizing our lives. In fact, what He's interested in is your struggle with your kids. He's interested in you making the house payment. He's interested in what is burdening you uh, in your office, what you're dealing with in your life right now, because it's not as if you can hide it from him, right? And so anybody that thinks that they're able to come on Sunday mornings with this pure, intentional heart is kidding themselves, right? Because we're all bringing baggage. Now, some of us bring U-Haul trailers, but we all bring baggage uh, in with us, and that is where we're supposed to bring in baggage, right? Worship is uh, about meeting God uh, wherever we happen to be. And so I've actually found that if I feel very distant from the Lord, and, and that's my problem, not His, it's not as if He's avoiding me, uh, I find that if I just stop and worship Him, I realize that He's not so far, that He's not so far. Uh, and so, uh, as we lift Jesus up, we pray that He draws all men and women and children uh, to Him. And so, worship is not just uh, standing to, to sing and kneeling to pray and uh, all the things that we do here at the Advent, but in fact, it's a lifestyle. It's something that marks our entire life. Now, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, I think that we do it just by simply being aware of God's presence uh, in our lives and allowing Him to actually work through us wherever we happen to be. You know, I, I was convicted a long time ago when, um, when I asked a friend uh, well, I'll, how they were doing. They said, not great. They were honest with me. And I said, well, uh, I'll be praying for you. And they said, you probably won't. And, and, then walked, and I thought, that's kind of true right? Because we all say that, we're like, oh, I'll be praying for you, or like, oh yeah, let's grab lunch soon. That's kind of the same idea. Let's grab lunch soon. And, 
and you never, uh, you never do. And so I started making a habit of actually praying with that person right there. Or as I'm walking away, just simply praying, you know, Lord, I pray for Andrew, uh, that, um, that you would meet him uh, at his point of need. And uh, just, it really is a constant conversation uh, that you're having with God uh, for the entirety of your life. And so uh, to simply confine it uh, to one Sunday morning is problematic. Now, that's not to downplay Sunday morning. Coming together as the body of Christ is incredibly important, and it's something that we ought to do. In fact, we're admonished in scriptures not to give up meeting together, as some are prone. Now, one of the things that I really love about worship at the Advent and Anglican worship in general is that there is a great verticality to it. Uh, you can kind of get lost in it. There's a transcendence, uh, which is really marvelous uh, and, and beautiful. And you can kind of take a break, right? It's not like anything else. I mean, I don't know, maybe your office is like the Advent. Uh, mine is. Uh, but, um, uh, but, I mean, it really is. It's, it is a chance uh, to, you know, some people will talk about it this way. I'm here to recharge my batteries. Now, that's all well and good, but the whole idea of worship is us actually worshiping God. It comes from the old word worship, that we're actually giving God His due, what He is worth, uh, and what He has done uh, for us. And so there is that verticality of worship where we are encountering uh, the Lord Jesus and worshiping Him. Uh, but there's also a horizontal nature to worship that is often, often lost. Um, you know, that I think has given rise to uh, a lot of folks that, um, that uh, you know, especially in big uh, mega churches where it's kind of a big production, and it really is in some ways. Um, an emotionally engaging experience. Now, that's not to say that we're not trying to emotionally engage you here. It's not as if we're saying, our goal is to make sure that you're just bored enough, right? That's not, uh, not too exciting, but just bored enough. You know, that's not what we're trying to do here, but um, Joe Gibbs, uh, who I'm going to rat out, uh, had two Sundays between here and, and going back down, going to Jacksonville, Florida, and today is his first Sunday in the pulpit down there as rector of Church of Our Savior. And, uh, and last Sunday, he was sending me photos from Church of the Highlands. And it had like this huge Christmas tree and all these purple lights and this thing. And there's this guy on stage who I thought was Reuben Stuttered, but wasn't. And um, so that's what really got me excited. I was like, ah, let's do it. So, um, but he was just, you know, when we talked about it, this is not a criticism, but he said it was just so overwhelming that you could feel the connectivity. You could actually feel the horizontal nature of worship. Now, he did say that, that the verticality of it was a little bit uh, lost, uh, but yet there was this sense of engagement as coming together as a body. And in fact, that's why when they named the worship book that we use, the Book of Common Prayer, the idea is that we all came together uh, as the people. It's common. It's the way that we all worship and all that we engage. And so when this book was being uh, drafted in the mid-16th century, um, the reformers in England uh, did not view themselves as innovators, but as restorers. Uh, even Augustine, back hundreds of years before they, uh, uh, the reformers got involved, he was uh, really upset with the ceremonies and rituals of the church in his day. And, uh, and so they, they borrowed a lot from Augustine. And what they had found is that uh, the church had become uh, corrupt in its worship on a number of levels. One, uh, the service was 
nearly entirely in Latin. Now in England, they'd started getting their readings in, in English. In 1535, the Great Bible was printed. And, uh, and so they were getting their worship in English, I mean their readings in English, but the rest of the service, normally there was often not a sermon, and if there was one, you wish that there weren't. And uh, in fact, that's why they printed a book of homilies, because they said, you're a terrible preacher, read this. And they would actually get up and they would read uh, the sermons. I mean, the idea is that eventually they would wean it off, but um, I sometimes give those out at ordination to select individuals. So, um, um, so a, a full license to rip those, those sermons off. Uh, but they didn't see themselves as innovators of doing anything new, uh, but there was certainly a, a transcendence in worship uh, at the time of the Reformation, but at the expense, expense of actually any verticality in worshiping God. It, it was, the people were so far removed, the congregation was so far removed from what was going on that it really became about what was going on up front. Uh, very few people actually received uh, communion. Uh, it didn't happen very often because of uh, great fear and judgment. In fact, they had to pass a law in England that said you've got to take communion at least twice a year, and one of those times being Easter. Um, that was against, if you didn't do it, you were breaking the law. Um, and uh, to actually get people to come forward to receive uh, communion. Uh, and uh, the church was in a real mess. I mean, you know the stories about Martin Luther and going to Rome, looking to get a spiritual pick-me-up on his pilgrimage. Uh, and there he saw uh, terrible things uh, that he realized uh, were not, that may have been meant at one time to draw people close to God, but now had become a mighty impediment to God. And so what brought the reformers back was actually studying the Bible, actually opening the Bible and letting it speak for itself. Um, uh, there's a wonderful little quote from Philip Edgecombe Hughes' book, The Theology of the English Reformers, that says, The rediscovery of the Bible is the authoritative word of God, led to the rediscovery not only of the necessity of preaching the gospel, which, which is its central theme, but also of the need for reforming the church's worship in accordance with the supreme standard of Holy Scripture. Now, one of the great things about Cranmer is he had one of the most amazing libraries in all of Europe, at least one of the greatest theological libraries in all of Europe. Uh, a number of his books um, were, were actually scripted out by monks that took years and years to write things out. And of course, the printing press under Gutenberg was well underway and things were getting printed uh, all over Europe, especially Reformation uh, documents. And most of his library was made up of the early church fathers, those that uh, followed after the apostles, as well as the continental reformers, who he actually talked to and corresponded with often. I don't know if you knew this, but Cranmer was trying really hard to get a, council, a general council of the church to come together as a response to the Council of Trent, which met forever. But um, he, invite, he tried to get Calvin involved and tried to get Melanchthon involved. And uh, Melanchthon kind of hemmed and hauled about it, typical. And, uh, and, and Calvin just kind of, yeah, we'll get around to it. Well, of course, it, it, never, it never happened. But Cranmer was trying very hard to get all of the reforming parties together. Not only that, but Cranmer was bringing in people from the continent uh, to teach uh, at Oxford and at Cambridge. So he brought in Martin Bucer and he brought in Peter Martyr, uh, who had a tremendous influence on him uh, in the drafting of the prayer book. And so the principles that were laid out by Cranmer and the others are the principles that we follow today. The first being Scripture as the foundation. 
Article 20 in our Articles of Religion say, it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Now that is, uh, we can't do anything. The Bible says you can't do, right? That's, that's pretty straightforward. Now there are those uh, in, uh, in the church throughout the world. Um, this is Lauren's least favorite part. Uh, so. uh, there are those uh, in the world that, uh, that believe, well, you can only do those things in Scripture that are expressly permitted, right? So you'll actually go to some congregations, and they have no musical accompaniment, and they sing psalms, but they do have air conditioning. Uh, and uh, so and, and that, they, they're really sticking to what they believe to be the biblical principles. Now, our tradition says that, no, if, if, as long as it's not contrary to God's Word, Feel free, you know, please, uh, please do it. And so there are some things that I often refer to as cufflinks, like certain vestments, things like that, which, you know, the Bible doesn't really have a lot to say about. Uh, and so there's really no prohibition. Um, I'll get to organs in a minute. Um, but uh, the other thing that Cramer did is, okay, well, we need to reform our worship so that it's congruent with Scripture. And if you notice, there's a whole lot of Scripture and scriptural themes throughout the entire service. One, uh, one of the amazing things in the Episcopal Church, maybe ironic, is that we read a whole lot more Scripture in our services than most other churches. Right? Cramer actually wanted us to be able to get through almost the entire Bible in a year. We certainly would get through the book of Psalms, but if you follow the daily office, you'll get through the Bible in a year uh, in, in the back of the prayer book. So that's one thing. He wanted us to actually hear what God had to say to us. Um, and in fact, the preface to the 1549 prayer book mandates it. It says, you need to follow the lectionary so that you get through the service in the year. But it also, because we have this lectionary, it forces preachers to preach through the Word. Right? Um, there are times when I am awfully tempted. Uh, you know, there are ways for us to do sermon series around here. So for instance, like... Uh, this year we were going through the Gospel of Mark because that's what the lectionary gave us. So we could have, we kind of did do a series on Mark, but we didn't talk about it. Um, but uh, we won't ever say, okay, we're going to do a series on life and family. Now, part of it is because we can cover that kind of stuff in these classes, right? And and you can always call us up and say, my children are bad during Christmas. Um, is it a sin to give them half a Benadryl? You, know, something like that. You, can, uh, you, can, you can just come to us and ask. Um, give them the whole thing. Give them the whole thing. Don't do that. Um, uh, but what it does is it doesn't allow us to bring our agenda into the pulpit. It's not, what do we think you people need to hear? But in fact, we're given the scriptures and we're forced to grapple with them. And there are some Sundays where I'm just like... Looks like Stephen McCarthy's going to preach this Sunday. Um, uh, it really is, um, you know, I mean, one of the, even the, you know, like we, we do have Trinity Sunday, which comes up right after Easter. And in England, it's called Curate Sunday because the rector does not want to preach on the Trinity. Like, it, it, it really don't. And so every time that's come up, uh, like, well, what do you want me to say about the Trinity? I want you to preach the Word. What are the Scripture readings that you have for that day? And, and preach that. Don't get into the weeds, but in fact, don't try to bring a theme, but actually let the Word uh, do its work. So having so much Scripture and using the lectionary, which Cranmer mandated, it forces preachers to preach. 
It forces them to grapple and engage with the breadth of Scripture. I mean, I, um, there's a preacher who I really like a lot, and I was wondering how he handled a certain passage of Scripture, and I looked it up, and he's been preaching for a long time, and he's never preached on that passage. And I thought, well, that's really... Now, that, that's, I mean, that happens sometimes, even if you're preaching through the lectionary. Uh, but, uh, but I was really amazed that, that they didn't have a sermon uh, on, on that text of Scripture. Uh, and, uh, but if, if that pastor had been preaching the lectionary, he probably uh, would have. Uh, not only that, but it's in the language, uh, worship is in a language that people uh, can understand. Um, I, we still don't get the radical notion that our worship is in English. Now, here at the Advent, it is Elizabethan English, uh, but we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but uh, before that, um, you know, during the time when the Great Bible was printed and the people actually began uh, who were literate, uh, could go to their home church, and every parish church had one. It was chained to the lectern, so nobody would steal it because it was such a precious commodity. Um, and we forget how, um, um, just how accessible the Bible is to us today. I mean, it, we, uh, we have sometimes a problem with shoplifting in the bookstore. You know what book is the most often shoplifted? The Bible. It is. It's, I wish they shoplifted the cheaper ones. Uh, but, uh, but they tend to get the nice big sort of leather bound, you know, with the study notes that can ward off muggers and, you know, whatever else that you have. Um, but, you know, there's a part of me, and I told them, I said, I want you to get, like, what we have in the pew, our pew Bibles, and just leave a stack next to the door, right? And, uh, I mean, one Sunday, some, a guy was coming out and was like, hey, I really, uh, I, I need a Bible, and uh, but, I, you know, I can't really afford one. I just walked over to the pew and grabbed him a Bible and said, here, here. I mean, we don't realize just how accessible the Word of God is. And yet, in Cranmer's day, when they printed the Bible in English, they were knocking one another down to get to it. And they had engaged in Scripture for almost 15 years. And so the reform of the worship of the church uh, was inevitable. And indeed, in 1548, that's what happened. The service was kind of a split between English and Latin. And in 1549, it went fully, um, it went fully English. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, look, if you're speaking uh, in a way that people don't understand... They're hearing with their ears, but they're not hearing with their hearts, their spirits, or their minds. I mean, think about that. I was, um, uh, uh, I took a lot of French in college for dates, and <laughs> there really was, and I thought that my French was pretty good, and, and I, I went over, uh, and I had a friend who was a missionary in France, and, uh, and I sat through their worship service. And uh, I didn't understand a word. I didn't understand a word. And I left, and I was really glad to be around the people, and I'm sure that whatever was said was okay, but then again, how would I know? Um, and, uh, and I realized that there was a real, that there was a real disconnect uh, happening uh, there. And so if you cannot, you might be able to hear with your ears, but if you cannot uh, hear with your heart, spirit, or mind, uh, there's a problem. Now let's talk about thee and thou. Uh, one of the funny things that happened at uh, that happens uh, here at the Advent is that we use right one pretty exclusively, pretty exclusively, and that's not because we're really uptight and we like tradition. 
Uh, well, maybe some of you do like it for that reason. Uh, but, uh, but we use it because of the theological thrust, and we talked about that last week. Uh, but did you know that in Cranmer's day, the use of thee and thou was actually the familiar use of you? Right? You, to say you, is, is the formal. But to say thou is actually the informal, affectionate, the language that you would use with your family members and, and, and your friends. And so it was a really radical notion in very much the same way that when, uh, when Paul talks about us being adopted as children of God and men given the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father, to be able to call God Father, to be able to call Him uh, Daddy, to have that kind of relationship. And so the language of thee and thou, which I understand has been lost, also in Cramer's day, the word prevent meant the complete opposite of what it means now. And so we, have to, we do have to be careful of that. Uh, but we hope that um, that, that language, uh, that, you, that you, don't, you don't miss it. I would love to hear from you if you are like, I am totally missing it. I don't understand a word of what you people are saying up there. Uh, you don't have to say it now, but, but please do uh, uh, email Stephen McCarthy. So, um, but you see, I mean, if you're using a language that the people don't understand, and I would say that that even goes beyond, beyond a foreign tongue, but even how we communicate in English, not just with Elizabethan English, but especially in our preaching. Um, you know, one of my bad habits in preaching is I bite off more than I can chew, and I try to fit too much in uh, to a sermon. Stop shaking your head, Lauren. Uh, favorite quote from Lauren? I mean, it was the sermon long? Well, it wasn't long, but it felt long. Um, uh, but if we're not, a, I mean, the gospel message is so simple and our task is so great. We have a little plaque uh, up in the pulpit quoting St. Paul that says, Woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Uh, in my last parish, uh, there was a little plaque engraved and it said, Sir, that we would see Jesus. And that's the idea, right? That, that you would actually be able to see Jesus in uh, our preaching, that you would have an encounter with him. And so if we're layering on sort of obscure illustrations or things that don't let the light shine in, and we're actually putting a veil intellectually between you and the gospel, uh, that's, that's problematic. The spiritual dimension of it is a whole other thing. And so Latin, in Cranmer's day, concealed the Word of God in the design and purpose of the sacraments of baptism and communion. They had no idea what was going on up there because they couldn't understand. And so if they couldn't hear the words of take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, they had no idea what they were doing. And it gave rise to all kinds of superstitions, which is why people were, were not likely to receive communion. Another principle that we employ here at the Advent too is that worship is to be decent, done decently and in order. Um, Someone was asking me uh, about um, worship in a particular denomination, and, and I, my response was, to add is to subtract. Uh, if you begin adding things into worship and to the Bible, you're actually beginning to take away uh, that which should be plain. And so in Cranmer's day, layers of ritual and ceremony uh, made that which is supposed to be plain, obscure. And even uh, in our day, uh, we have temple worship language creeping into Christian worship. So here in, uh, in the early church, uh, we, they didn't have churches. Where did they meet for worship? 
people's homes, right? They would come in and they'd sit in the living room and they'd have a meal together and they'd have fellowship and they'd uh, share in the Word and they would, uh, they would open up uh, their Bibles. They would uh, talk about uh, what was going on in their lives. They would pray uh, for one another. There would be times even a prophecy. If someone had a word from the Lord, uh, you can look it up. Uh, it's all there in the Bible, uh, what they were up to. And, um, and yet, if you weren't a Christian... You did go to a temple, right? You went to, you went to worship uh, up at a temple. Uh, so whether you were living in uh, Lystra and you went up at, to the temple of Zeus and you sacrificed there, and, um, and even the language that, uh, that is now used to describe our churches. Now, all of this, the meanings have changed, so it's not as, as bad as it once was. But words like nave, chancel, altar, the notion that there's a holier place um, behind the communion rail than in front of it, uh, that's, those are temple ideas. Those aren't church ideas. And so, in fact, we had a wedding the other day that had brass in it. And because I'm standing there at the communion rail with the bride and the groom and the best man and the maid of honor, um, the question was, where did the brass stand? And I said, well, put some of them in front of the step in the rail and then put some of them behind. And they kind of looked at me and they said, behind the rail? I said, the worst that could happen is they get struck by lightning. Like, that's the worst. They could just burst into flames. I said, you know, that, this is, uh, yes, that it's, you know, we're not being irreverent, uh, but to think that, again, that there is this veil of walking into the Holy of Holies. Uh, we know very clearly that when Jesus died, what happened at the temple in Jerusalem? The veil was torn in two. Right? God is not confined to a place. In fact, He takes up residence in us. Right? We, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And not just that, but in our practice, uh, dress, ritual, uh, incense, things like that. Does that. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, incense represents our prayers uh, to God. And I think that they mean that. Um, I'm not saying that they don't. Uh, but like what you see here uh, in Acts 14, uh, and what you saw in the temple, when was incense used? And why was it used? To represent the presence of God, tangibly. So Paul and Barnabas, Hermes and Zeus, incense, right? They're there, they're amongst us. And the Holy of Holies, incense, because that's where the presence of God dwelt. And so incense kind of came back into the church due to the doctrine of transubstantiation, that Jesus was literally present uh, in the bread and in the wine. Now, Kramer didn't get rid of all the ceremonies and rituals, uh, but only those that robbed God of His glory. In fact, uh, William Whitaker, responding during Queen Elizabeth's reign, the first one, not this one, uh, during Elizabeth's reign, uh, when people said, well, you're taking away from us all of this ritual and ceremony, which is so close to our heart, he said, look, nothing can be more dignified, more majestic, or holy than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so our worship here is governed by Scripture, uh, Catholicity, that is that it's in, in harmony with the teaching of the apostles and the church, uh, purity, anything that is false should be discarded, simplicity, excessive rules should be avoided, uh, intelligibility, worshiping with understanding, commonness, congregational worship, the engagement of everybody, uh, and orderliness, because God is a God of order, and things are done decently in an orderly fashion. I just want to close with one really wonderful quote um, from George Whitfield, uh, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. And um, 
uh, Whitfield was experiencing a lot of folks who were leaving the Church of England in the midst of all this revival to go to other church bodies. And they often wondered why Whitfield never left Anglicanism. And he said this in his journal, I keep close to her, that is the Church of England, I keep close to her articles and homilies, which if my opposers did, we should not have so many dissenters from her. But it is most notorious that for the iniquity of the priest in the, la in the land mourns, we have preached and lived many sincere persons out of our communion. I have now conversed with several of the best of all denominations. Many of them solemnly protest that they went from the church because they could not find food for their souls. They stayed among us until they were starved out. Well, I, I think that if Whitfield were alive today, that uh, we've really lost um, in many quarters, uh, there are lots of exceptions, the gift that Anglicanism is, especially in its worship and its word-centeredness uh, that we have, and, uh, and in fact have caused people um, to leave, whether it's because they're not feeling like they're connecting or that it's feeling overburdened. Now, that's not to say, look, if this is not your thing, if you think, well, I just don't like the Advent, then, then you don't have to go to the Advent. Uh, but I do think it's very interesting, and I mentioned this in my upcoming word, the number of people that come to our church from non-denominational settings um, on Christmas Eve and Easter. And uh, it's like, I don't want anything traditional all year long, but it should be traditional Christmas Eve and Easter, right? Uh, give me some organ, right? That's what I want uh, on that. And, um, and I understand that because, you know, we have some friends who go to a church, uh, not in Birmingham, uh, but they go to a church and we were talking about what we did on Christmas Eve. And they said, well, what I really love about our church is that the music director... Uh, writes his own Christmas music. I'm like, he does what? And uh, because like when you go to church on Christmas Eve, what, you, you, want, you want Hark the Herald Angels, right? That's what you, you don't want Mary, you rode a donkey into Bethlehem. You know, you don't. Um, I mean, you don't want that, right? You don't want that. Uh, so we're not making this stuff up, right? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a method uh, to our madness. And so uh, uh, above all, above all, uh, as we're centered and rooted in the Word, we're, we're focusing in uh, uh, on the Lord Jesus, and, uh, and these principles ought to guide our worship here uh, at the Advent uh, as well. And, and they do. Uh, they do. In fact, um, you've seen some of those things, like we're... Um, we, we've gone to um, putting uh, almost the entire service, and it's going to look different actually in the new year uh, because it's a little bit crowded right now, uh, but that's to allow people actually to worship without having to juggle four or five books. Uh, and also, uh, if you read my Word article, it's to preserve the integrity of our worship here at the Advent, which is becoming um, a little bit harder to do. Um, questions, comments, concerns? You've got two minutes. I didn't quite understand what you said the changes were in the bulletin. I just had a quick read this morning. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, there really aren't any changes in the bulletin except that we've placed almost the entirety of the service in the bulletin. So before, we would just kind of give you like helpful hints uh, to worship here at the Advent. So we'd put page numbers and stuff like which we still do. So if you want to use the prayer book, you can still follow along with it. Uh, but really, the idea is that all you need in worship is... Um, is your prayer book 
or actually all you need is the, the, the leaflet and the hymnal. And I know that there's a fear uh, from a lot of people that say, well, I feel like we're getting away from the prayer book, but actually it's the opposite. We're, we're trying to stick as close to it as we possibly can. In fact, I have a meeting with Bishop Sloan tomorrow uh, to talk about worship at the Advent, and, um, and, and then that'll be a good conversation. It won't be a bad one. Um, but the General Convention, um, I believe sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, so they passed a resolution saying there's a service in the prayer book called Rite 3, what's colloquially called Rite 3, which is very vague, and you can kind of do whatever you want. And actually, that's, that's pretty much taken over a good bit of the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so a lot of churches aren't even using Rite 2 or even Rite 1, certainly not Rite 1. Um, and so they, but the thing was is that that wasn't allowed to be the principal worship service on Sunday. And so um, they passed a resolution at the last convention that said it can now be the principal worship on Sunday. And so uh, I'm having a meeting with Bishop Sloan, and we've already talked a little bit about it. I said, you know, I understand that the intention of the resolution was for people to go this way in their worship. I also want the opportunity to go that way in, in our worship. I want the flexibility to draw from the breadth of the communion, uh, and not to be experimental, um, but, but to be able to take advantage of those worship resources that uh, have not been available until that resolution was passed. So his, I think he's kind of... He, he, he never thought that it would manifest itself this way. But there you go. Yeah. I had a question. Um, just for clarification, you were talking about the fact that our um, service is, is vertical and that there are some churches where their service seems to be horizontal. More horizontal. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you saying that you wish that we had more of a horizontal nature? Well, I think that in, in liturgical worship, that's actually one of the things that you need to be aware of because it is very easy to kind of get stuck in your, in your ownness and, and not understand the congregational worship, whether it's an impediment because of the liturgy or you kind of get so lost in it, you wonder, how am I worshiping alongside all these other people? So, and a lot of it does have to do with, you know, I, I hate to criticize it, but, you know, we have a, a little brass plaque that goes into the church that says, please be quiet, exclamation point. Right? Now, I understand that you, know, you should pray and you should you know, uh, prepare yourself to worship, but if we're a family gathering, I think it's wholly acceptable for you to have a conversation and say, how's your week been? It's good to see you. I don't think it ought to be a, you know, a riot, uh, but at the same time, and just the irony of please be quiet, exclamation point. Um, but uh, so, and the fact of the matter is, is y'all aren't quiet. Uh, and, um, and so it's such a, so I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you've got a, it's like being in school again. It's like being in algebra, like mind your P's and Q's, make sure you look right, make sure you're doing everything you're supposed to be, when in fact, um, we do want people to encounter God. So, all right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>